As you look at America today, all the problems we have out there, it's, it's a very polarized nation. Do you ever see it coming back together again? Uh, John, the founders of this country, I spend a lot of time, in fact, uh, that, that picture right there in the middle is, is the portrait of Alexander Hamilton there. You can't see him, but he's there. Um, I, and I, I've been a fan of Alexander Hamilton long before the goofy musical came along. Um, you know, I, I just I marveled at his, his thought. Here was a man who died in his 30s, who was so brilliant. Um, not only in his in his jurisprudence and his, his legal reasoning, but created our economic system in some ways, our banking system in the United States, all at 36. Man's dead at 36. So it, it, you have incredible men who came at this particular moment, but beneath this experiment in liberty that they created were two principles, foundations. One, they needed, and it needed, their experiment needed, an informed populace. And the other thing it needed was a moral populace. I worry today that we are failing on both counts and the foundations are quaking. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Well, hello. I hope you're all doing well. Raymond Arroyo, my guest, is just a great interview, in part because he is an amazing storyteller, and it does help that we share a wee bit in common. Think New Orleans. I have wonderful memories having visited on parish missions to help out on restoration work in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, our group was led by Monsignor John Hart, now out of Morristown, New Jersey. Raymond Arroyo talked to me about his winning on-air chemistry with Laura and Graham, and he will also have lots to say about his first picture book, The Spider Who Saved Christmas. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I thought this story, it's important to preserve it, because, again, being a New Orleans boy traditions and why we do the things we do year after year, not just mindlessly, but to explain to the next generation, you know, the, the origin of the things we do is very important. And this story explains why people decorate their trees with tinsel. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Sure, look, it's grand to have you back, and I wish you all a great Thanksgiving if you are celebrating it in the US or anywhere in the world, as I record this from the New York area. Some exciting news coming up in the next few weeks. So stay tuned to the podcast now known as Dig Life Deep, formerly Life on Planet Earth. Now, Dig Life Deep. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is the internationally known award-winning journalist, Fox News contributor, 
and lead anchor for EWTN News, Raymond Arroyo, who is on tour with his new book, The Spider Who Saved Christmas. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Raymond, uh, welcome to my show. Delighted to be with you, John. Thanks for having me. Because I know you have a very busy schedule today and you're going to be on the road soon promoting your book. It's a re-release. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, You're originally from New Orleans. I am and live there. I'm broadcasting from there now. That's where I'm I'm greeting you from in my my office here. Uh, Yeah, born and raised. And, you know, New Orleans is a big part of why I do the things I do. And, And certainly my storytelling and my writing, a lot of that comes from the city that I was uh, born in. And, and of course, it's been an inspiration to writers from Faulkner to Tennessee Williams to, uh, uh, oh goodness, Lillian Hellman to Anne Rice. So there's a long line of uh, authors who've been inspired by this city. Well, I have um, some connections with New Orleans. Really? Um, I have a lot of cousins who live there. And my mm. uncle, Jack Brennan, who came from County Mayo, Wow. Uh, lived, they lived out in Metairie, and I visited often. I plan another visit, I hope, soon with COVID out of the way. Mm. And uh, he, he, he passed away a few years ago, but always spoke highly of New Orleans. So he was an Irish guy in the city. So there is an Irish population there. There is. It's multi-ethnic, really. Yeah, we're not. Look, there are nine cultures here in, in New Orleans that sort of conspired to make the city. And it was the Irish, the English, German, Italian, the French, African-American. Uh, you had the, the, the Cuban, the Italians, uh, Germans. So it was a very odd mix of people, but they all brought something particular. And there's an area of town known as the Irish Channel, where all the Irish sort of collected. And that's where they first settled. And that area, even today, is... Uh, you know, St. Patty's Day, everybody gravitates toward the Irish Channel. They have parades there and all the bars are open. It, it's a it, it's a particular area that retains its cultural flavor. And we have that all over the city. We, we respect our traditions here in New Orleans and those who contributed to the fabric of the city. And, and really, that's part of my telling of this ancient tale, The Spider Who Saved Christmas, my, my picture book. It, it's really... I see it as a continuation and telling a story and passing a tradition on to people, not just something I thought up one afternoon. And, and that's, that, too, is uh, connected to the city. I, I won't talk too long about New Orleans, but it's a fascinating city. It may be one of yes. the most Catholic of all American cities in the South, for sure. Sure, without a doubt. No, we have more adoration chapels and prayer groups in New Orleans per capita than any city in the country. So, and you know, we're a traditional people. And though we have the rap of being, you know, carefree and and Mardi Gras and all that, uh, people don't realize for the locals, those those are all parts of our cultural expression and community expression. Uh, And even Mardi Gras is really Lenten preparation for Lent. That's really what it is. You're, you're yeah. having this blowout from January 6th, the Feast of the Epiphany, clear through to Ash Wednesday. Well, th- that's part of our lived tradition so that you feel the belief here and you feel the conviction in the festivals, in the food, in the music. Um, and, and then and when Mardi Gras ends and Lent begins, you feel it in a very visceral way in New Orleans, unlike anywhere else in the United States. Let's be honest. Uh, Tennessee Williams had that great line, um, and I don't subscribe to this, so don't blame it on me, but he observed 
and part of it is a correct sentiment that uh, New Orleans is one of the two great cities in the world. Every place else is Cleveland. <laughs> so, <laughs> with, with apologies to my Cleveland friends where I have many. Yeah, yes. And you have a, a wonderful cathedral as well, a, a beautiful landmark. And uh, it strikes me also as being a big city for Marian devotion for some reason. Well, uh, Europe, all the European traditions, I mean, the Italian, the Spanish, uh, the Irish, the French, they all have those deeply held Marian traditions. So when they came here, they brought those with them. And remember, New Orleans, when it was first settled, it was a penal colony. I mean, it was, you know, the French were dumping their prisoners here. And to domesticate the place, they imported the Ursuline nuns, the sisters who established the first convent in the United States, which is still standing in the French Quarter. And they had a devotion to Our Lady of Prompt Succor, who I think, oh, her statue's in the other room. She's in the, in the living room, not here. Uh, but uh, Our Lady of Prompt Succor is the patroness of New Orleans. She's a French uh, Madonna. And it is she whom the Ursulines prayed to during a major fire in New Orleans, which spared their convent and half of the French Quarter. And also, uh, Andrew Jackson attributed his victory in the Battle of New Orleans to the prayers of the Ursuline nuns, who also prayed to Our Lady of Prompt Supper. So that's a, there's a neat historical connection there that, uh, that continues today. Yeah, fascinating. So you grew up Catholic in a very Catholic city. Um, just tell us really quickly about your background. Well, I, I, I grew up here in New Orleans. My grandfather was a, a restaurateur. Uh, my parents, you know, my, my mother was a legal secretary. My father was a mechanic. Uh, I went to school here in New Orleans uh, at, to the New Orleans Center of Creative Arts in addition to my high school. Um, and NOCA, it's called. You might know uh, Wynton Marcellus and Harry Connick and uh, several others yeah. who came out of that program. So we have a very tight-knit community of folks who went to that school. And that led the way to my going to NYU. I studied theater, the journalism, pre-law at NYU. And uh, that is really where all the you know threads of my interests and passions sort of began to come together. Uh, I was trained by a woman named Stella Adler. Uh, and Stella was a renowned acting teacher. She trained Marlon Brando and Frank Langella, a lot of incredible people. She was the acting coach at MGM. So people would know Judy Garland, all those people she trained. So Stella was 90 when I studied with her, sharp as a tack. Um, she taught me a certain amount of fearlessness in front of a crowd and a camera. Um, and, and I was her last class. We were, you know, three years with her and then she retired or expired. I can't remember which, but uh, I'm sure I had something to do with that. Uh, and, and and from there on, you know, I became I, I became a journalist. I segued into journalism from the theater. But it's really when I look back, I consider myself a storyteller, whether I'm reporting things that are happening today or uh, spinning tales of fiction. You can often tell more truth in a in a fictional tale than you can in one that's fact-based. Uh, but it's all storytelling. It's all communicating and hopefully uh, uplifting people. I mean, Stella taught us something that's lingered in my mind. She used to always say, and I'm sure a lot of people don't share this idea when they consider what they do as performing artists. She used to always say, you have an obligation to get on the platform and remind humanity of its humanity and to teach it civility and the highest and the lowest of the human condition and to 
portray that on the stage. Uh, That was a really important insight. And it really is what we do as storytellers. You are reminding people of their humanity and inhumanity as a warning. Well, you are certainly come across as a fearless individual. You're full of energy. I've never seen you unhappy on TV or anywhere, whether it's on Fox or EWTN. I, 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 I have to. Where does this bubble come from? You're, you're um, a very happy individual, I assume. Yeah, I. You know, there are people who I think, and I've encountered some in life, and they are they're burdened, you know, they're burdened and life has thrown awful obstacles in their way, or they've been, you know, subject to abuse. And I mean, they've had hard lives. And I think we all wear, you know, you wear your soul and your heart on your face, no matter what people say, or what mask they try to wear. Um, and I guess coming out of acting, I'm very sensitive to to, to those little indicators, what people aren't saying. Um, oh, is that me or you? I think that's me. I'll turn that off. Um, but it, it's so, so I, I mean, when, when I come in front of an audience, they don't need my troubles. Look, I'm burdened and, and get upset about things as anybody else. But there's no use wallowing in that or passing that on to uh, your audience. I, it's not why people come, certainly to me. Um, and through the work I've done at Fox, I think people need a break. They want to have a laugh. They want to consider, uh, again, with a glint in your eye, the horrors that are around us. You can laugh through the pain and find the good, even in horrible situations. And I think that's the best way to go, because all of this, we've lived through all of this before, and we shall live through it again, whether we're here or not to see, around to see it. Right right now, you're out there promoting a, a re-release of your Christmas book. Tell us about that and why you decided to go on the road with it this year. Well, when I was in Eastern Europe you know, many years ago, I was marveled that they had these trees and they were covered in tinsel, but they had little spider ornaments on them. Beautiful, beautiful ornaments. And um, forgive me, I don't know why that phone keeps intruding on us. I've turned it off and it still rings on the on the computer. Forgive me. Um, I, I, so I was in Eastern Europe and these trees were covered in tinsel and they had these little spider ornaments. And I didn't know what these spider ornaments meant or what they they you know, were a part of. I assumed it was a holdover from Halloween. They were kind of recycling things. I didn't know. Years later, I came across a little footnote in a a Bible commentary. I was doing some research for another book. And it simply said, there is a legend of Mary, Jesus, and Joseph on the flight to Egypt, hiding in a cave. There they met a spider who performed a particular service to them. Well, I later found out that little legend has its origins in Eastern Europe. It's a very ancient tale. And it's a sweet story. Uh, I'd never heard it before uh, in in all my years. So I decided to do some research and then expand the story, which I did, um, adding some characters uh, as a motivation. I mean, you're dramatized around the edges. Uh, And that's, I I thought this story, it's important to preserve it. Because again, being a New Orleans boy, traditions and why we do the things we do year after year, not just mindlessly, but to explain to the next generation the origin of the things we do is very important. And this story explains why people decorate their trees with tinsel. I always thought the tinsel was supposed to be icicles or something. That's not true. The origins of tinsel are indeed the web of this spider. It's hearkening back to that. So we've continued the remnant, the relic of that story, but somehow lost the story. And I wanted to bring us up to date and sort of bring this story into contemporary culture and into families. 
And I'm delighted that it's resonated the way it has, because it does speak to what we're going through today in some ways. Which we could talk about. The inevitable war on Christmas is coming up here. (laughs) So uh, get that book out. And we have to let people know Christmas is an important tradition in America. It's a holy holiday. And even if you're secular, it's it's a Mm -hmm. wonderful holiday to celebrate. Yeah, well, it's... You know, we, we, uh, again, the reason I loved this story and I think I was attracted to it is because it points us back to the central mystery of Christmas and why we celebrate. It explains the reindeer and the snowmen and the Santa Claus and the shopping and the gorging and all of the turkeys and all of that, uh, the caroling. All of that is tied to this central mystery, which is just this. God took the form of a child and became man. and you talked about the war on Christmas and somebody asked me the other day, where, where did this start? Well, it started where my story begins, where you have a family and we often don't talk about this, but it's really important to John. Yeah. Um, Mary, Joseph and Jesus, right after the birth of Christ, Joseph is awakened and told, take the, the child and his mother and go to Egypt, flee. And they, they're running for their lives. So this child was hunted. God as man has been hunted since the very beginning. Worldly powers who were very concerned about their power being undermined by the coming of this Prince of Peace, by this King, by this Messiah, they launched war on him and they send out troops to hunt him down and kill him. That's the backdrop of the Christmas story and the season. And it indicates something. It shows how important this child is. And how even in, in a backhanded way, Herod and every emperor since then are saying this matters. This The belief in this child matters, and it has to be stamped out because it threatens me. Well, that's why we, have to, we who live in freedom have to remember why this is important. Rekindle that devotion to our, our deepest held beliefs. And I love that this story, in a gentle way, in a sweet way, gives children an on-ramp into the mystery of the nativity and the wonder of it. And as Mary says at one point, you know, at the beginning of the story, Joseph takes his staff. He's trying to kill this big spider. This, and this isn't a little spider. This is a spider the size of my fist. They're big spiders in, in, in the Middle East in this particular breed. And Mary stays his hand and says, let her be. All are here for a reason. And she sees, I think, in that spider, because the spider is protecting her, her little spiderling sack in the corner, her own children. And I think the Blessed Mother sees her own reflection in that spider. And it ends up being, though this isn't said anywhere, the picture book, and I wanted it as a picture book so families could encounter it together. It ends up speaking to motherhood, the nature of sacrifice and love, and how no matter how disparaged or small your gift might be, God may be calling you to share it, not only with those nearest you, but with the world, because it has a very important necessity in this moment. And that's what this spider discovers. That's what I think children discover reading the story. I've had them tell me that. Um, And I think it's why it resonated and is resonating so deeply with families. So who should read this? Children and families? I always say, I don't write for children, dirty secret. I've never written for children. Um, I've written a number of books that publishers say, oh, this is a children's book. I actually write for families. I write for, as uh, Frank L. Baum used to write, the, the man who created the Wizard of Oz series. 
He said, I write for the young and the young at heart. And that's why I write for two, because to me, the greatest children's literature, you know, in reading to my own children, I read Treasure Island multiple times as a kid, and I loved Treasure Island. I liked the drama of it and, and you know, Long John Silver and hiding in the barrel and running after the treasure, all of that. I, I found it very exciting. When I read it again as an adult to my own children, the story shifted entirely. And my perception of characters and the morals there and what it really was speaking to that had totally gone over my head as a child suddenly resonated with me as an adult. Peter Pan, I had the same experience. You know, I wept every time I read Peter Pan. My kid, what are you crying for, Dad? Well, I can't imagine you weeping. You're moved by it. Because your your emotions. Well, these, these stories carry all stories, but particularly old ones. Um, they carry kernels of truth that we need for living today. Um, it's why those classics endure. And I really wanted to write my own my own eternal tale and refashion a story that had that weight and that power. And it's again, it's very gentle. It's 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 a winsome tale. So the children are following the drama in the foreground. It's really almost like a thriller in the foreground. But behind it, there are movements, there are emotions, there are currents that a child is going to miss, but the parents and grandparents certainly pick up on. So I'm writing for both of those audiences at the same time. So it's a family read. I want them to encounter it together. It's better that way. But you've written other children's books too. I have. I've written a a, a middle grade series called the Will Wilder series um, for uh, middle grade kids between eight and uh, maybe 15, 16 years old. But what I've discovered is my readership is much younger. I've got seven, five-year-olds reading it. And then I've got 80-year-olds reading the book. So that book as well was fashioned in the same way. Adults can read that with no shame. There's a lot happening beneath the surface of that story. And it's a family drama about the battle of good and evil. A little boy with his own uh, supernatural talent who uh, is drafted into a battle he never intended and is part of a chain of events and a family that in which he plays a very important role. And that's all of our stories. We have a gift to give, and we're born into this particular family at this moment. And that's a that's a heavy burden at times, a gift. But you have to allow the child to exercise it. You have to nurture that gift, no matter how frightened or scared you might be as a parent. And that's also part of it. It's it's uh, I love that series. In fact, I'm writing book four. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. My guest is the internationally known award-winning journalist, Fox News contributor and lead anchor for EWTN News, Raymond Arroyo, who is on tour with his new book, The Spider Who Saved Christmas. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. This is beautiful. I I just wonder how you have time to go on the road and promote this uh, latest one. You're on Fox, you're on EWTN, you have a writing projects you've got to be very organized 
Well, I'm not very organized, but I, I uh, but I, you know, but I, but I'm a hard worker. So I work in between little, you know, I, I try to find little snatches of time when I can work. And look, I don't golf. I don't play tennis. I don't play rugby. I don't do any of those things. I, I don't have time to do that. I also, uh, I, you know, I, I don't pursue, uh, I'll watch occasionally a football game from afar. But for the most part, this is my recreation and my outlet and frankly, my therapy uh, mm. a little bit because it allows me to spend time with people and stories that uplift and uplift me um, after a week of covering things that frankly aren't always so nice. So uh, yeah, it becomes uh, an important outlet. But yeah, I'm working on a number of series right now, uh, both picture books, as well as uh, the continuation of the Will Wilder series. You have a sense of optimism in your tone, and you come across as a very optimistic person, a very happy person. I see your on-air relationship on Fox with Laura and Graham. That's that's amazing. You guys bond so well. Well, we've known each other a long time, you know, and and uh, Laura and I met in 2005. So we, we you know, and I, I actually went on her show, her radio show, to do an interview about the Mother Angelica uh, biography, which I'd written then. And I was booked for a five-minute segment, maybe. And uh, Laura said, oh, can you stay after the break? And I said, sure. She said, stay for another segment. So I stayed for another segment. Then I stayed for the remainder of the show. Then I'd pop in during the week, you know, a few times a week. And, and, and you know, so then then we became, it became a fixture, uh, you know. But you can't, I always say this, and I knew this as an actor. I knew it as a director. You, you can't fake chemistry. Casting is 98% of any project. If you get the wrong people, you can talk them into things and you can try to shoot it a certain way or stage it a certain way, but you're never going to get that real chemistry unless there's some a spark truly there. And with Laura and me, like Mother Angelica and me, the first moment we met, it was like instantaneous. I knew her role, I knew mine. Uh, we were very comfortable and at ease. We could joke and kid. Um, and all of that was present really from the very beginning. So we've just continued what we did on radio. Uh, you know, now you're moving and you're bending and you're adjusting to the news of the day. And that those segments, um, though it's a whatever, six minute segment, those take hours to prepare because of the sound bites and, you know, they're, they're crafted. They're not. Um, so they're not, they're not live as such as we know. Well, they're live. They're li no, we do that live. What you're okay. seeing is live. But, um, and I almost hate to say this because it's giving away a little of the magic. I don't want to ruin it for people, but I, I do shape that. We shape the direction and we know the points and how one topic will play against another and where the jokes are going to land or hopefully land. So it, there, there is a framework. There's a framework in place that helps uh, that relationship emerge. And then it's easy. Then it, you just sit back and kind of let it happen. Well, you have a lot of material to work on with this uh, U.S. economy, the political system, the mayhem in Washington, uh, Joe yeah. Biden, uh, climate change, uh, riots on the streets. So yeah. rich resources to use there. I agree. Are you ever going to let up on Joe Biden? Well, I mean, look, he's the president of the United States. We're, 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 we cover the president as we covered the last president. And we'll cover the next one. So, yeah, I mean, I, look. There are moments where, frankly, I tire of the political conversation, but uh, the audience doesn't. They want more of it. Uh, they, they want us to keep reporting and talking about it. And it, it is a public service. I mean, you know, these political figures, no matter the party, 
their real goal is to get you to go silent and, and ghost them so they can do what they want and push their own image of what's happening in D.C. Our job is to hold them accountable and expose them. And so there's always that tension. There's always that tension between a reporter and, and the, the, the subjects of their reportage. So I, it's, it's something you live with. It comes with the territory, as it does, you know, my covering the Vatican or any other uh, topic. Uh, well, we need reporters like you to hold them accountable, uh, and the public wants that. And of course, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, it's a very polarized nation. We it just is. see that in um, just how the votes are cast. As you look at America today, all the problems we have out there, it's, it's a very polarized nation. Do you ever yeah. see it coming back together again? Well, one would hope. Uh, John, the founders of this country, I spend a lot of time, in fact, uh, that, that picture right there in the middle is, is the portrait of Alexander Hamilton there. You can't see him, but he's there. Um, I, I, and I, I've been a fan of Alexander Hamilton long before the goofy musical came along. Um, you know, I, I just, I marveled at his, his thought. Here was a man who died in his 30s, who was so brilliant. Um, not only in his in his jurisprudence and his, his legal reasoning, but created our economic system in some ways, our banking system in the United States, all at 36. Man's dead at 36. So it, it, you have incredible men who came at this particular moment, but beneath this experiment in liberty that they created were two principles, foundations. One, they needed, and it needed, their experiment needed, an informed populace. And the other thing it needed was a moral populace. I worry today that we are failing on both counts and the foundations are quaking because of that, because you don't have, you neither have an informed populace nor moral people. So we have to rekindle that and rediscover that. And until we see, you talk in this, to bring this full circle, until we see the reflowering and the ease and comfort of religious expression in public celebrations and in the public square, you'll never get to a moral people because they won't know the difference. And until you fully inform people and stop sugarcoating or giving them a massage, um, you'll never get a populace who's engaged and informed enough to make a difference. So I have hope that those two things are possible, but in the moment, yeah, it's a very dark moment. It's not. It's not a bright, cheery moment. But we have to have hope. If we, if we, if we give up hope, you know, then we all should go away and be dictators, yeah. <laughs> rule our little islands somewhere, and just you know. Yeah. I guess. But we did see some signs of hope in in, in the recent elections, uh, the way the vote shifted in Virginia, in New Jersey, and other mm-hmm. parts of the country. Uh, so how some of the incumbents got tossed out, depending on how you spin it and characterize it, there was an anti-woke backlash of sorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, people don't like, look, I always say, people will follow a political narrative and they will follow their own um, uh, ideology up until a point. They will suffer financial ruin. They will suffer personal hardship and loss following that ideology until it affects their children. And when it impacts the children directly, and that's what happened in Loudoun. We lived there for 11 years. Uh, When it hits those people, and uh, look, I have friends there, Democrats, Republicans, independents, some new immigrants to the country. They were infuriated by by the decisions of the school district. And 
governmental leaders telling them, you don't need to worry about this. We've got your kids. Don't worry. You stay. You just shut up and sit down. Nobody likes hearing that. So it took that extreme victim, children, to rouse and awaken the populace. One hopes it doesn't take that for them to get engaged. One hopes they would be attentive to religious freedoms and, and personal liberties and taxation and regulations and, and move against all of that. All of that should be repelled and beaten back, no matter your political party. We should have freedom in the country. That's the promise of the founding and the promise of God. These rights weren't given by the government. These rights were given by God and nature. And every, every one of the founding fathers agreed to that and with that. That points to the biggest problems in your mind in America is religious freedom, some moral fiber. Where does the national debt then rank? Or, or, or do they, you know, if we get our moral fiber back and some sense of purpose, we can deal with all those other issues? Well, they're reflections of one another. The economy, and I can't remember who wrote it, maybe it's Hamilton. Um, the economy is nothing more than tracking the uh, confidence the robustness of your people, the, the faith of your people in some ways, in that they're free to trade. They have confidence that the market's going to succeed, so they invest their money. The, the, you know, they're growing enterprises. That is a sign of where your people are inside. The religious thing, religious and a more a public morality, which doesn't mean a sectarian belief in any one religion, but a, a, a common uh, public morality, which we once had as a country, is suddenly shattered. And what happens is you begin to then allow your culture to collapse around you. And that's what's happening. We have mm. a cultural collapse. Where have the audience is gone? The audience is tuned out. They're only watching sports. I mean, that's the reality. Yeah. All of that is reflective of the heart and soul of the people. If you cure that, if you get people to once again act on their deeply held religious beliefs, if a public morality is operable and people respect the human dignity of the other person and regard everyone as a child of God, suddenly all these issues evaporate, whether it be racism or, or, or a bias, uh, all of that disintegrates. And you have a healthy economy and a healthy interaction because people are, are, are operating at a higher level than they are today. And respecting the dignity of all people, including, of course, the unborn we see what's happening in Texas as a positive sign and in other parts in terms of restoring a pro-life culture in America. Well, you know, Pope Benedict XVI brilliantly, as he did so many things brilliantly, but he brilliantly made the argument to environmentalists that he agrees with them. And, you know, he was the first green pope. People talk about the green pope. He was actually the first green pope. He made the Vatican City state carbon neutral, put solar panels on the roof of one of the big buildings and Paul VI Hall. Um, Benedict made the argument that if we move toward allowing protection of nature and we want to protect nature and conserve it, surely that extends to the womb. And we have to protect not only nature, but all of God's creation, including life. Again, that holistic vision is so powerful when it's clearly articulated. Um, today, we have all the buzzwords and the politics, but not that moral principle. And um, we need that. We definitely need that today. And again, we are now suffering under what Benedict called the dictatorship of relativism, where you have shifting goalposts. The rules keep changing. One day you're a saint. The next day you're canceled. Uh, but that's relativism. That's what happens. 
it, it, because it's nothing lasting or strong or enduring. It's all ephemeral and shifting. If people want to be part of that, have at it. But I think most Americans, most people in the world really don't want that. So we're at a changing uh, time in our history. It could go either way, you seem to be saying. And hopefully it will go in a very positive, uh, life-affirming way. Well, I, I look, I, we're not, creation is not, um, all of creation is not something that we have control over. I mean, it's one of the reasons that, um, you know, religious faith is so strong in the United States, particularly. I mean, that's an admission that you are not God. And that means there is a God. Mm. And he crafted all of this and has it in his hand. Now, when you violate what's already wired into nature, when you begin to go opposite of that, as we see in China, with the suppression of uh, not only childbearing, but of basic principles like free speech and, and dignity, when you see that trumps, there's, there's by nature built in, there's going to be a reaction to that. Um, so if people want to, to push against what you know the, these rules that are basically written into our hearts and souls if you want to fight that have at it but it won't end well so yeah. that's why i'm ultimately optimistic even if chaos reigns because people go down this ruinous path um sometimes that dark hole is the way to light because that's the only way they can see the light again you're touring with your book where will your stops be along the way for the spider that saved christmas Yes. Uh, you, you, well, I'll be touring starting this weekend in Tampa, Florida. You can go to RaymondArroyo.com. Uh, RaymondArroyo.com has all the dates, but it's Tampa, Florida. Um, I'm in Mesa, Arizona, uh, Houston, Dallas, uh, I'm the villages in Florida and here in New Orleans. So I'm touring almost every weekend, sometimes two stops on a weekend uh, from now till Christmas. So I'm, I'm thrilled because I couldn't do this tour last year. So uh, I got so many emails and letters from people saying, oh, I want you to sign the book. Will you sign the Christmas book? And I said, you know what? We really should go on tour. So this is really, John, a gift for me because I get yeah. to reconnect with my, my family that I don't haven't really seen for a year and a half, um, you know, which was the last time I was out on the road doing very much. So this is sort of the real release, even though it's a, a re-release. You didn't yeah. get on the road last year. So this will give you time to connect with your readership. It's yeah. published by Sophia Press. Yeah. They can go to their website, go to your site, Amazon. It's available anywhere books are sold. It's everywhere, yeah. And Barnes & Noble and local booksellers, uh, independent bookstores have been so supportive of the book. And Barnes & Noble is really, uh, you know, they're, they're hosting the entire book tour. I'm, I'm stopping in their stores throughout. Uh, so you can go to their website, Amazon, all of those places have, um, you know, have the book available. And it, it's, it's a beautiful gift. And again, I always tell people, don't just buy the book, read it to your grandchildren or your children. Take that moment because that shared experience is better than anything I've written. I promise you the book, you know, a book, I, I always say any story I tell, I only, all I do is rearrange words on the page. The, the book really happens in the reader's imagination and in the conversations that follow. So you do 50% of it or more. So that part of the equation um, is truly important. So don't just give it, read it and share it with, with the young people in your life and, and the older people who might need it. In between, you'll have a, be able to come back to New Orleans to enjoy Thanksgiving and Christmas with your family. I'm sure that's a real I special will. time. 
Oh, it's a great time. This is my favorite time of the year. I mean, look, I, I'm I'm a sucker for Christmas. I love Christmas. It's it's uh, you know I've done Christmas specials and I I, I start playing Christmas music in like September. So you know I, I just I love Christmas. It's my favorite time of year because it points to uh, the, the 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 joyous seismic wonder that God became man and all that means and the gift giving is the gift He gave us and that we are expected to pass on to others. That's what this season's about. Um, and being with family, those you love, friends, it's a time to rekindle your humanity, who we are, the best parts of us. Um, and I hope people take the time to do that. I will. And, and in New Orleans, you know, we not only is Thanksgiving a big blowout, but then you have the Advent season and there's caroling in the square and, you know, the Revion dinners where we, you know, they fast uh, for almost two days. And then everybody goes to midnight mass and then you have a blowout and everybody eats like, you know. Oh my gosh, I miss before. it already. I have to visit there again very soon and visit Please the cousins and I have a beer with you or something. You bet. A Sazerac. I'll take you to the Sazerac bar, which is the first cocktail in the United States. I mean, that doesn't mean much to Irish. You are much older <laughs> than cocktails. Beginning but, so be fine. Pat O'Brien's has this very large... Um, I don't know what it's some cocktail on on Main Street in the French Quarter, but yes. I will return the compliment and buy you one of those large cocktails. A hurricane! Oh my! A gosh. hurricane! There you go. I'm far too old to drink those. I don't <laughs> touch those anymore. That hurricane, you know, that's just like for those who don't know, it's a big hurricane lamp. It's like a hurricane lamp shaped like that, and um, it's about this big, and it's filled with punch, vodka, rum, all kinds of unmentionable booze. You don't mix like that. I can't mix it. They say you you take one swig of that and boom, you're on the I, I I had one. I had two of them on my last visit, and I, I don't remember much for a few hours after Raymond. But right. we'll we'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah, you thought you were back in 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 Ireland after that. Yeah, that's that's. In fact, you might have been. Who knows? I, I felt I was in Ireland. Knows. I was transported. That was the whole idea of that concoction, really. Yeah. Well, it's a <laughs> too much for my blood. No, no, no. Yes, I'm a teetotaler, so. Raymond, we'll it was it. a pleasure having you on my show. I would love to have you back again. I know you're real busy, but I will come Thank up you. with some excuse to gather because this has been fantastic and I will have more You're questions better. for you. Well, thank you so much for having me and Merry Christmas. I know it's And Merry Christmas. Everybody. God bless. We'll break protocol. <laughs> thank you. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.